All right. Hello and welcome just to family. Just giving you something to talk about or just the live TV as I like to call it. I'm your host, Melissa Crutchler. I'm an identity coach, spiritual teacher, business mentor, creator, and founder of not only just the live TV, but also the Women Supporting Women Can Network. Today we are going to talking about when life feels stacked against you. Um, that is what we're talking about today. That's our focus. Our sponsor today is the Women Supporting Women Can Network. Uh, if you want to join a community of women who are looking for the same things that you're looking for, we go into many different categories of the Women Supporting Women Can Network, um, motherhood, business, life, self-development, uh, relationships, you want it, you name it, we got it. So go and check that out. You can join the Facebook group uh, at Women Supporting Women uh, Can and yeah, take a look at that. I'm going to hand it over to my guest speaker to introduce themselves. Cassandra, would you like to do the honors? I would, thank you. So my name is Cassandra Lambert. Um, I live in a very small community in Michigan in the United States. And first off, I wanna say thank you to Melissa for allowing me to be here and to share my story. Um, it's incredible that she has this platform that she's able to leverage to help people like me share my stories. And that's what I hope to do through my business is help people share their stories. So it's near and dear to my heart. So I just want to say thank you. <laughs> you are very welcome. Um, I'm just tagging the Facebook group in the comments. So for anybody watching, make sure that you join the Facebook group. Um, feel free to comment. We are of course live streaming so you are able to join us in this conversation um and let's get started so today we're talking like i said about um when life feels stacked against you and when you and i talked about that in the pre-screening we were really focusing on um like more so medically right because i know that in your experiences you've had a lot of medical issues stacked up like within yourself and your family um, so we will primarily focus on that, but at the same time, there is, you know, a mental, emotional, physical, uh, so many different areas of our life that we feel are like just stacked on top of each other, which is crazy and irritating and overwhelming to so many of us. So, uh, did you want to tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, that would be wonderful. Um, so kind of backing up to when I was born, um, I would say the first probably nine years of my life um, were fairly normal. I had a mom and a dad and they raised me in a small community in Michigan where I'm from. Uh, my parents were married when I was about three or four and it was just me for the longest time. Uh, my dad worked a job that took him away uh, on travel for a long period of time, uh, a couple different times throughout my childhood. So I was raised primarily by my mom. Uh, she was my best friend. I mean, I felt like we were two peas in the pod, you know, that very classic uh, mother-daughter relationship. Um, she, was, she was my everything growing up. And when I turned nine, um, a lot of things all kind of happened at once. <laughs> Stacking, right? Yeah, it was like uh, our world was completely turned upside down. Everything did a complete 180. Not only was my little brother born, which you have to adjust from being an only child for the first nine years to having a sibling, 
Um, my mom went through a transition from having one child to two. She was also, also hospitalized because she was exposed to Fitz disease. Um, she was volunteering in my school and she became a high risk pregnancy um, around the time my brother was born. So she was hospitalized. And unfortunately, at that time, I was also hospitalized. I had developed a life-threatening condition called ITP, immunothrombocytopenia, or idiopathic thrombocytopenia, depending on uh, where you're at in the diagnosis age. So I had developed ITP, which was a blood clotting disorder, and I had developed it because I had been exposed to a massive viral load of chickenpox. Um, it was completely off our radar. We had no idea what it was or how it was going to affect me or even that it existed. I just knew I was bruising really easily. I was really, really tired. Um, and my mom took me to the pediatrician one day and was like, look, look at her body. Look at these spots. I had developed bruising and bruises. And I was so sensitive to bruising that you could give me a hug and your hands and your arms would bruise my body. So I would get the, the physical imprint almost of, of that hug, of those handshakes, high fives, you know, small little bumps. Um, so I was covered in bruises and it was at that doctor's appointment uh, that blood was drawn and they told my mom they, and my dad that I had this, I suspected diagnosis and they didn't even want to release me from, from that routine doctor's appointment. They wanted to take me by helicopter to the nearest children's hospital. Um, they said I couldn't leave, leave the facility. It was life-threatening. If I were to get a cut, I would bleed out. There was nothing that they could do medically in that moment um, to keep my blood uh, in my body if something had happened. And so things kind of got crazy there for a minute when I was nine. Um, Thankfully, I was able to be treated at the Children's Hospital uh, Hurley Medical Center in Flint, Michigan. Um, that was quite the battle, and, and I can go into more of that a little bit later on. But moving along through my timeline, thankfully, uh, I was healed with no uh, long-term issues. Praise, praise, <laughs> praise Jesus. Um, so that was around the time I turned nine, and around when I was 11, my mom really went downhill. Um, she had developed a mental illness and she was later diagnosed with chronic paranoid schizophrenia. And so the person that was my life growing up um, was no longer that same person. And she looked the same. Um, you know, she still slept in the same bed. She still ate the same food, but her, her brain was so much different during that time. Um, it lasted for a few years. Uh, the, the thick of it, so to speak, lasted a few years. So from 10 to roughly 14 or 15, that, those were the hardest years. They were the beginning of her diagnosis and the ending of our relationship as I knew it. Um, eventually, my parents divorced and my mom did develop uh, a co-occurring substance abuse disorder. She became an alcoholic and an addict. And I separated myself from her as best I could to keep myself safe. Um, and again, we can go into more of that later. Fast forward to my senior year of high school. I was 17. I graduated. I went to college. Um, I finally found 
independence. I wasn't taking care of my little brother or helping in our household. It really gave me a sense of, okay, this, this is life and I'm responsible for me and myself and this is okay. So 17, 18 was really great. Um, when I was 19, I was sitting in my math class. I believe it was a statistics class. It was frankly very awful. Um, and I lost my eyesight. I was sitting in class one day and all of a sudden I realized that I couldn't see out of my peripheral vision, uh, completely panicked. I mean, when you lose a vital sense like that, uh, you just, you just start panicking. You go into panic mode. And I remember, um, I made it out of the building and I made it to my dorm room and I laid down and I freaked out. And that was the beginning of my diagnostic journey to eventually learn that I have a brain tumor. Uh, I have a pituitary adenoma. Um, it's one of those things that's actually really common, but no one really knows about it because usually it doesn't have symptoms. Um, usually it's small enough and minuscule enough that it doesn't bother the host. Um, unfortunately, that was not my case. And I started to develop migraines and issues with monthly regulation and hormones. And um, it really caused me to struggle through my sophomore and junior years of college. Um, I was missing class, I was throwing up, I wasn't able to see, I wasn't able to drive. Uh, shout out to my roommate for, <laughs> for nursing me as best she could. She was really a huge lifeline. Um, so luckily with some medication and time, um, we were able to kind of get that under control. I did not need surgery. Um, I still have the tumor to this day. It's still something that I manage, um, but we're in a better place with it now. So with that tumor, uh, one of the issues was infertility. And when you're 19 sitting on a cold doctor's table and you have this, bless him, you have this old white man telling you that you don't know, that he doesn't know if you can have children or not. It was one of those moments where I knew my future would change and my future wasn't what I had planned it for. You know, we grow up with these uh, ideologies that you're going to do the American dream. You're going to have yeah. the family, the white picket fence, the husband, the wife. The two and a whatever. half kids. And... Right, right. You yeah. know, whatever your dream family is, you have this idea that you're going to have it. And suddenly at 19, that wasn't the case for me. Um, there was no no definitive testing or anything that they could do at that time to tell me what my journey would be like. Um, and at 19, I wasn't looking to get pregnant and start a family yet. So I just lived with the news of likely infertility for the next 10 years. Um, after I graduated college, I moved to Indiana and I worked for the Department of Child and Welfare. Um, I worked as a foster care worker and I did removals of children from their families when their families weren't able to take care of them for, you know, whatever was going on, whether it was substance abuse, mental health or uh, issues, um, unstable housing, unstable food. So I worked there for a little bit. I learned so much um, about the system and humanity and hopelessness and hopefulness and how important communities were to getting 
people off streets and breaking generational issues and trauma. It's just, it was an amazing experience. Do you think with that experience and, and your beginning stages, um, <clears throat> that, that 10 to, to 15, when your mom was going through her stuff and, and you guys were going through your stuff, um, do you think that that kind of gave you a different outlook on those experiences for yourself? Seeing it, you know, maybe a similar or, or, you know, situations that would resonate with how you felt or resonate with your situation um, in that, that field of employment. Um, yeah. It kind of changed the way you A hundred percent, a hundred percent, hundred and ten percent. It absolutely affected how I viewed my job, um, how I took care of the families, took care of the kids. And when I was younger, um, I had CPS interview me. I had CPS at my house. Um, somebody had, had witnessed an event and they didn't believe myself or my brother was safe and they called CPS. And having that exposure at a young age and being interviewed, um, I learned as the person giving the interview what to do, what not to say, um, you know, how to talk to kids, how to talk to adults. And I was able to take what I had learned firsthand um, and use it in the job in a way that I hope and pray uh, benefited my clients and my families. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So moving on, because I'm not done with my story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I met my husband at college. Uh, we fell in love. We got married in 2016. We bought a house. Everything was as good as it could have gotten, you know, when you're in your early 20s and just figuring out your life and, and doing all those wonderful things. Um, we had a son in 2018. Um, I won't say unplanned because very, my son is very, very wanted and very, um, very special in our lives, but I didn't know if he was a possibility. Um, so he just kind of showed up on his own one day and uh, I was very, very thankful. I am very, very thankful that that is how life turned out uh, in my fertility journey. Um, everything was happy and healthy. I had a great pregnancy. I didn't have uh, any major complications. We had a great birth experience. Um, I didn't have any complications, you know, during that time. He never had a NICU stay. He wasn't a preemie. I mean, just everything went right that was supposed to go right. So about a year later, um, he's kind of stopped hitting his developmental milestones. He really started to kind of slow down. Um, he didn't regress, but he had kind of stopped progressing. So I talked to his pediatrician and I said, you know, I've, I've worked with kids long enough to know something's just weird. Something's not right. Something's not following the path. You know, just let's, let's keep an eye on this. Let's check, check on this. And so, you know, two of the big things that I had really brought up to her were his inability to sit up and his inability to hold his own bottle. That was a really big red flag for me. Um, throughout his first year of life, he really struggled uh, with that core strength <clears throat> in holding his bottle. And so when I approached her, it was, she was great. She automatically referred us to start early intervention services. And 
that was 2019 and we started all of the therapies we started physical therapy we started occupational therapy we started speech therapy um we got in-home services through early on which is an early intervention it's a public early intervention services here in the, in the united states uh, we had home visits we had a caseworker we saw uh, his first specialist physical medicine and rehabilitation so we had started the diagnostic journey and started to see specialists and I have to, I have to say I'm extremely grateful for my experience in regards to that because I was believed the first time. I didn't have to advocate very hard to be seen and to be heard and to be his voice. And I know, unfortunately, more times than not, um, my case isn't everybody else's um, experience. We, we had a nine month journey to have our oldest daughter diagnosed with type one diabetes. Mm -hmm. Every sign, every symptom was there, but they, nine months it took them to test her for, for her sugars. And she was in the thirties um, in Canada. So our, our numbers are a little bit different in the US than they are in Canada, but um, she was on the verge of a coma. And yeah, nine months it took for them to seeing three different doctors at the same location, trying to get, you know, hey, what's going on with our daughter? And yeah, nine months it took them to diagnose. Yeah, I think this really speaks to parents know their children best, always and forever. You can be a medical professional, you can be an education professional, and you have the expertise as those professionals. But as a parent, we know our children best through and through. Yeah. So we started with the physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor. And that's when we started talking about cerebral palsy. Um, she said he has a lot of the same symptoms, but how he acquired CP doesn't make sense. And so it was that trying to answer that how he got to where he was point that led us to neurology and then led us to genetics. And it was through, finally, through genetic testing that we found out he has a rare genetic disorder called KIF-1A Associated Neurological Disorder. Um, he's one of about 500 known cases in the world. It mimics, the symptoms mimic cerebral palsy. So there's a lot of balance and coordination issues, um, hypotonia, so low muscle tone, hypertonia, so high muscle tone in a different part of the body. Um, developmental delay, uh, physical delay, cognitive delay, intellectual delay. So we, we just had this moment in 2021 was when we finally got the diagnosis. So from 2019 to 2021 is how long it took us to finally get his diagnosis. Um, and yeah, we, we were enveloped by this amazing community. Um, luckily, just a few years prior, uh, another family had been diagnosed with this disorder and advocated for it to be recognized as a disorder, created a foundation and became the central information hub for professionals and families alike. So we were greeted by this community, a club that you never want to be part of, but you're thankful that it's there and it has a president and it has a board and it has, 
you know, people who can share your experience. So uh, 2019 started our diagnostic journey. Uh, we also had a house fire that year um, because, you know, life still happens when other life <laughs> is happening. Uh, we have a house, it was built in the 1930s. It's a beautiful old home. Um, but one of the downsides to having an old home is you have old wiring. And unfortunately, we had an electrical fire. Um, it displaced us for about three months. And so we lived out of a hotel, still trying to keep up with all of our appointments while our house was completely cleaned, completely rewired. I think it had about $30,000 worth of work done to it. Um, it was just another hill in our journey. Uh, we all know what happened in 2020, the world, the world. So we have, um, he, he's not technically immunocompromised, but he has enough symptoms that it is not good if he is sick. So that 2020 was the beginning of shutting, shutting ourselves in. Um, not going anywhere. In fact, it, we were so serious about it that we retired one of our cars and we became a single car household um, where my husband could go you know, to and from work, work from home when his company was able to allow it. Um, and I just didn't go anywhere. I didn't take him anywhere. And we kind of became shut-ins for a long time. And unfortunately, that's still a reality for a lot of families like mine. Um, things have changed for us where we've been able to leave and be out a little bit more. Um, but there are so many families with kids or caregivers who have a rare disease or are immunocompromised and aren't able to get out and about. Um, so that that is a part of our story. And then in 2021, when we finally got the diagnosis, it was February. Um, by July, I had advocated so much and gotten myself into such a tizzy, uh, I actually checked myself into the psych ward of our local hospital, um, which is a whole discussion that we can have once you want to dive into it. But that experience opened up my eyes to clearly I wasn't doing something right. I wasn't taking care of myself. Um, I wasn't showing up for myself in the way that I needed to be happy and healthy and stable. Um, so it was really an eye-opening experience for me. So that was February was the diagnosis. July was the hosp my hospitalization. Um, and by July, August, August, September, I had conceptualized my company, uh, the Stripe Stable, so I, I knew that I needed to start a fundraising for a wheelchair accessible van for my son um, with his particular genetic disease. Um, it has all the markings of nothing that you want. It's progressive. It's degenerative. There's no treatment and there's no cure. And so I knew with him, you know, being four years old, he's going to continue to grow. His body's going to get heavier. I'm going to continue to age. My body is going to lose strength. I, as God is my witness, I want to be a gym mama. I want to be lifting heavy weights and throwing around my biceps and looking hot and all that fun stuff. But that's just not the reality of what I'm capable of doing at this moment in time. And so I started fundraising for a wheelchair accessible van. And very quickly, um, I was able to see success through social media. 
and networking and putting myself out there and telling our story and learning the ins and outs of social media and posts. And I was able to take those things that I learned and kind of package it into a way to help other families like mine. I had researched hours, days on the internet, how to raise money for a van, how to raise money for medical expenses, how to pay for whatever. And I very quickly learned that there was no resource out there for caregivers like me. There were no resources out there for parents talking about the shame of asking people for money, talking about the, the going against the grain of you know, doing everything ourselves and, and having this Western ideology of, oh, I've got to make it by myself. And it's hard to go against those things. And it's hard to call on community, especially surrounding money. It's hard to ask for help. And I don't know why, but it is. I mean, I do know why, but it, it's hard. And it's something that I would love to change in the future or change right now. But all this to say um, I was able to take what I learned and kind of package it in a way to help other caregivers do what I had just done. And I describe it kind of the equivalent of riding on a train while you're building the tracks. <laughs> you know, you're very, very close to being <clears throat> right at the front of things. You're about half a step behind. And that's a beautiful part of my journey because I get to experience that every single day. Anytime that I learn something new, whether it's how to use Canva or a scheduling program or a grant or how to say certain things to get doctor's orders or calls back or, um, you know, what to write in an education plan. Anytime I learn something new, I try to share that with everybody that I can using social media because it's such a powerful tool. So I really, I really feel like I'm home. I really feel like I've found uh, my life's purpose. And that's just to be a teacher of an experience that I wasn't really thinking I was ever going to have. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that is, so your, your life and the reason why we created this episode today is it was stacked, right? Every experience, not just yours, but your parents, your sibling, your, you know, just everything that you've gone through from nine to now, you know, to, to an everyday person that's stacking, right? It's like stack one thing and then I have to figure this out and then stack another thing and I have to figure that out. And it's like trying to play Jenga. It's mm -hmm. basically like trying to play Jenga with your life, right? And that's what people don't understand is we go through our entire lives trying to play Jenga when we shouldn't be trying to play Jenga. Our life is you have the one static pillar right? We're that pillar in the middle and things come and go and you try to stack things on my plates, right? And it's like, okay, well, this goes here. Okay. I did that. I'm going to, I'm going to hand that off to somebody else now, or I'm going to hand that or put that on the table or put it in the dishwasher, whatever you need to do to get rid of that. Right. And, and that's, I think where I want to go with this is with all of that stacking and all of that trauma and all of those events and experiences, you know, I, I was not shocked that you, that you put yourself into the hospital because a lot of people will go to that, that extreme and not that it's an extreme, but go to that extreme because processing all of those things that get stacked, right. 
we don't process those. We don't, we're like, oh, well, that's just my life. I'm going to keep going. Oh, well, I've got this diagnosis. Well, I just have to keep going. And we don't process how that actually makes us feel mm-hmm. and what, and what we're feeling on that. Right. And, and how to move through that without just brushing it aside. Right. And that's where our de- identity comes in because again, our identity is that central core. That's mm-hmm. okay. I'm Melissa. I'm not my diagnosis. I'm not my child's diagnosis. I'm not my husband's diagnosis. I'm not my experiences. I am Melissa. How am I handling those experiences? Right. And so we always have to come from that place of center and then looking at everything else like a buffet. Instead of having it all, you know, you're not the server. You're just looking at the buffet going, okay, well, I like that. Don't really like that one. Um, let's just wash that plate off and, and put it away. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I have two major revelations, I would say within the last three or so years that just changed everything for me. And the first one was really letting go of the idea of control. I don't get to control nearly anything. I can pick where I go put gas in my car and I can decide what we're having for dinner, but I don't get to decide, am I going to have this life altering diagnosis? Am I going to lose my child before their next birthday? Um, You know, am I going to be healthy enough? All of these catastrophes or all of these major traumas that happen I don't get to control. And so recognizing that, you know what, I'm going to meet this experience where it's at and I'm not going to waste any of my precious energy trying to change the outcome. I can hope, I can pray. I have a strong faith that I've had to develop as a coping mechanism to go through all of this, um, which I highly recommend. I don't, whatever is your religion, whatever is your faith practice, wonderful. Uh, I'm not here to push anything on anyone, but it's, it's been a huge part of my journey. Um, so the second thing that I learned that I, I can't remember who taught me, it was some famous author or speaker, it was on a self-help podcast or something like that, but they said they look at a situation or an experience and they ask themselves, how does this serve me? And I think reframing the ability to reframe a trauma or reframe reframe a big life experience, um, a surprise bill, or you know your car broke down that day, being able to look at that experience and saying, okay, what am I going to take away from this experience that benefits me? Am I practicing patience? Do I get the opportunity to help somebody else? Do I get the opportunity to use my voice to um, speak for somebody else who may not have found their voice yet? You know, you have that control. You can choose how you react to those situations. And I heard that phrase for the longest time, but I never really understood it until the last few years. That's a misconception that people have is that they don't have control. Um, One of the things that I teach is 95% of our life, our reality is create, we create. We create 95% of our reality. We create 100% of our emotional health. We create 95% of our mental health. 
it's our control, right? Our control on our decisions, our control on how we handle things. That 5% are the diagnoses. That 5% are what other people say to you. That 5% of what we don't control are other people's actions. And, uh, you know, getting hit by the life bus, right? Any diagnosis is basically the equivalent of getting hit by the life bus and the life bus saying, hey, here's your stop. We're going to stop here for a moment. You get to check out the sites and then we're going to keep going, right? That's basically what we experience. Now, when I tell people that 95% of the reality they control, they've put themselves in 95% of that reality, people are like, whoa, like I'm not to blame here. It's not about blame. (laughs) It's not about blame. But it's about responsibility. It's about power, right? If you have the power to create where you're at now, you have the the power to recreate where you're going, right? Mm -hmm. So we have the power that no matter what our experience are, no matter what we go through, we have the power to change absolutely any negative into a positive Mm -hmm. by, by changing the way we look at it, changing the way that we're framing it, right? Like I said, instead of holding all of those plates for everybody else, put them all on a table and create a buffet and say, I'm going to deal with that one right now. I want to try that one. I want to delve into that one, see if I like it, if I need to you know, change it a little bit and then move on. Mm-hmm. Right. And when we do that, we don't stay stuck in one thing. We don't feel overwhelmed. We, we start riding the waves. We did an episode once called riding the waves of life because that's exactly what we're trying to do. Right. But when we, when we actually get to a point where we're thinking about it and we're processing as we're going, mm-hmm. it changes everything. everything. It really does. It really does. And, and I'm starting to feel, feel, feel that I'm starting to see that in my life. And, you know, I've been going through this interesting journey surrounding my relationship with my mom, because how I handled that when I was a kid is I cut her off emotionally, uh, physically. I did my literal best I could to keep myself safe. And the hurt, hurt child in me um, had feelings of, you know, you were supposed to take care of me, you were supposed to protect me, you were supposed to, you know, whatever. And I stayed stuck in that for so long. I stayed stuck in that for 15 years. And I, I cut her off and she would text me and I wouldn't answer phone calls. And I just kept cut off. I, I kept that part of me cut off. And finally, the emotional bill for that came due. Uh, I had my own child. I went through pregnancy. I went through birth. I went through the newborn phase. I went through postpartum depression. I went through and I'm going through anxiety. Um, and I, with those experiences, also went through a perspective change because now I can put myself in her shoes. You know, she was about my age when she started to get really sick. Um, yes, it is a fear I have that biologically and situationally something will happen and I'll start having her, I'll start having symptoms similar to her. Um, but what I realized is she did the best she could in the moments she had with me. 
she never wanted to hurt me. She was never malicious. This wasn't this, this imposter person that had taken over her body. Um, she didn't know how to get the help she needed. Her illness, schizophrenia, literally one of the symptoms is having the inability to recognize that something is clinically wrong. And it's true in schizoaffect disorder. I believe there, uh, it's true for some people with di uh, bipolar disorder. Uh, it's literally a diagnosable symptom or condition in and of itself. And once I realized that she did the best she could with what she had at the time, what information, what resources, how she was feeling, how she was feeling physically, you know, that really changed a lot for me because I could really empathize from her. Now that didn't completely take away the pain, but I'm, I'm responsible for my healing and I'm responsible for taking care of that hurt little girl inside of me and saying like, it's okay. It, yeah, it kind of sucked to grow up without a mom to go through prom and graduations and my wedding and, and all of those like big milestone things. And I've had to learn how to be a parent, uh, bless his heart from my dad. <laughs> and I have a lot of strong uh, motherly figures, but I don't have that, that relationship. Um, but I get to learn. I get to decide how that relationship looks. Um, and I get the opportunity to work on that. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. Perspective, perspective is key, right? Mm -hmm. Your perspective of yourself, your perspective of the, of the other people um, I've cut my own mother out of my life and my mother is in my opinion, an undiagnosed narcissist, a true undiagnosed narcissist that, that title gets thrown around way too much when it's not deserved. Um, we are definitely all narcissistic beings. We do have narcissistic tendencies and traits and, um, but I do believe she is a true undiagnosed, undiagnosed narcissist. Um, and I cut her off. And I was in my mid thirties. So not that long ago, within the last five years, I've completely cut my mother out of my life. And, you know, I'm, I'm a mental and emotional genius. I, I see things from absolutely every perspective. It's irritating at times, but that's what makes me so good at what I do. And even knowing that that's who she is and that's the way she is and that she's done the best she can with being the person that she is. I still have the right, the responsibility to say you're toxic for me, mm -hmm. right? My reaction to you is toxic. My being around you is toxic and you still have that capability, right? So it's uh, forgiving yourself for, for ending that relationship while at the same time saying, you know, I can, I can show you appreciation and gratitude for, for giving me life and doing the best that you can but I'm not, I'm not okay continuing. Right. And I, and people, people miss that. So getting back to our topic really quickly before we get going is, um, life does feel like it stacks against you. Right. And this is kind of like my parting, parting knowledge for everybody. It does feel like life stacks against you, but you do have a choice. You have a choice to change your perspective. You have a choice to learn how to maneuver through life's ups and downs, how to maneuver through your diagnoses, how to maneuver through anything that gets thrown your way 
you can learn. While it's not easy to learn in the moment, you can learn. Um, that's one of the reasons I created the Smarter Method was because if we use the Smarter Method, we are wholly individual, individualistic human beings. We learn who we are, how to handle our stresses, what we need, and how to move forward with that. So um, that's coming soon, actually. I'm going to be writing the book on the Smarter Method soon. I'm so excited. Um, what would you like to share before we get going? You know, I think what's on my heart right now and something that really changed the game for me is realizing surrounding fear and surrounding perception. You know, we as humans, when we're babies, when we're born, there are only two natural biological fears, the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. Everything else is made up. Everything else is made up. So those negative self-talk bits that are stuck on repeat in your head, somebody told you that. Somebody made you feel that way. You don't have to keep replaying those things. You don't have to be fearful of certain things. Um, that's all a social construct, and it's not a real response. It's not necessarily a biological response. Like you'd get, you know, standing on the edge of a cliff, looking down, you know, thinking, am I going to fall? Your body gets that natural, you know, response. But when you're in a boardroom and you're like, oh my gosh, this presentation, I, I have a fear of public speaking, or, you know, you're in teaching and your, your auditors there and you're, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, she's looking at me and making sure that I'm doing everything right. Those fears and those concerns, those are all learned behaviors. And just like you can learn a behavior, you can unlearn a behavior. You have that power. You just need to recognize it. And once you recognize it and it becomes real to you that you have that power, then the real change happens. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, all about perception, right? All about learning who you are and, and how you can change it. All right. Well. I, I'm feeling pretty positive about this episode. I, I love talking about mental health and I love talking about how our struggles are there for a purpose, right? They teach us how to be better human beings. They teach us how to be better versions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and when we figure that out, we, we become insanely powerful. Um, and trust me, <laughs> insanely powerful. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Cassandra. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you for having me. And I look forward to your book coming out soon. Why, thank you. Um, <laughs> on that note, for anybody watching, today's episode has been sponsored by the Women Supporting Women Network. I have linked the group in the comments. Um, this network is coming up with some pretty exciting things. It's going to be a members-only group for women. Um, women supporting women, right? And just making it and enabling us to feel supported and connected and valued. And that's really what this is all about. So go join the group um, and look for what's to come in the next month. We're going to be launching the membership platform. So come and join us and get involved. Um, I'm sick today, so I apologize for the sniffles. And I seriously thought I muted myself when I was blowing my nose. So I wholeheartedly apologize <laughs> for that. Um, I was like, I looked and I'm like, I'm not muted. Oh, crap. Um, this just tells you like it's live. This is real, real life. Exactly. Yeah. Real, real. Um, for anybody watching, catch, you know, join us, uh, sign up for the newsletter at just If you want to be a guest on the show, if you want to see a topic featured, 
absolutely reach out to us. You can find Just Alive on 90% of podcasting and live streaming platforms, um, as well as the main social media platforms. So go and check us out. Uh, connect with myself or with Cassandra. You can do so. Our links are in the description of this episode. I'm Melissa Kretschlein, your host, and I will wishing you all a wonderful afternoon, morning, or evening, depending on when and or where you're watching. Lots of love. Bye. Bye.